Well, good morning, church. Good morning, balcony. Good to see you up there. And good morning, Coldwater. That's fun to say. I should say it right into the camera there. Good morning, Coldwater. Great to see you as well. Yeah. Hey, if you have your Bible with you, we'd love you to open it now to Acts 13, verse 1. Acts 13, verse 1. That's on page 921 in your pew Bibles. Today, as we make our way uh, through the book of Acts, for those of you who are kind of new, we've been walking through the book of Acts, not necessarily to stop at every story, uh, and particularly now that we get into Paul's missionary travels, some of the stories are going to have basically the same point every time, because we're going to see some very similar things as Paul goes into different towns, different regions, different villages to preach the gospel. So the goal isn't necessarily uh, to say something about every verse in the book of Acts, If you're interested in a verse-by-verse covering, uh, we did that through the podcast, the End of the Word podcast. Rather, our goal in this series is to take a look at some of these foundational stories, these plumb line stories, so that we can think afresh about what it means to be the church. Uh, We are in a whole new world, right? We're in the church on the other side. And so it's a good time. Uh, When there's a big shakeup, when the world changes, when the Lord knocks us down, It's a good time uh, to think foundational thoughts, and so that's what we're doing. Today in this journey, we come to what we typically refer to as the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. Now, the fact that we call it the first probably clues you into the fact that there's more to come. There are, in fact, three missionary journeys uh, recounted for us in Acts. We'll obviously take a look at each of those. Today, we're looking at just the first episode in the story of that first missionary journey in which Paul and Barnabas begin to preach the gospel on the island of Cyprus. So we'll read from verse 1 to verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Well, as I mentioned, this is just the first episode in the first missionary journey. And so obviously we want to be careful not to act as though this is everything Acts has to say about how we should conduct mission and outreach as a people. Obviously it is not. But it does begin to set out a pattern that we're very interested in. We're interested in it just as Bible readers and as Christians. Uh, I hope we're, we're interested in every passage of the Bible. I hope we're reading every passage of the Bible and hearing it as God's word to us and, and wanting to take whatever principles it is appropriate to take from that. But we're also interested in a very particular way. We're reading this first and foremost for what it's saying and for what it meant in the first century context, but we can't help but read this through the lens of our experience today. We today as has been mentioned now a couple times, are embarking on a little outreach project of our own. Today we are launching our satellite outreach ministry in cold water. And so in the providence of God, we're here. We're here in this place in the text, in this moment in our history as a church. And I don't believe that that is an accident. So let's reflect upon what we've read in terms of how the church in Antioch began to branch out from their local community with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see what we can see in terms of our own ministry today. I think the first thing that Luke intends for us to see in this initiative is that it was launched out from a healthy base. Look again at verse one. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. That's a pretty impressive list. The first and the last names on that list are the ones probably that, that as Bible readers, we're most familiar with. Barnabas, of course, has been basically the, the, the best character in the book of Acts so far, hasn't he? Uh, it was his incredible act of generosity, which really kicked off a tsunami of generosity, which was needed to fund uh, the first generation in, uh, in terms of Jerusalem and all the outreach that they were doing among uh, the, both the Jews and the Hellenistic uh, widows. So Barnabas is an incredible character. He's also the guy that went and, and believed in the Apostle Paul before anyone else did. So Barnabas we know well. And then Saul or Paul. By the way, quick note, you notice that in this story he's called both Saul and Paul. Uh, sometimes one of the things Christians say, which isn't true, we say, well, you know, Saul, when he became a Christian, became Paul. But if you notice in the story, he's a Christian already, right? He's been a Christian for a decade, and he's called both Saul and Paul. Uh, actually, uh, Jews in those days usually had three names. Uh, Romans had three names. If you were a Roman and a Jew, you usually ended up with four names. And so as the Apostle Paul now begins to move out into Gentile territory, he's referred to more by his uh, what it, we might think of as his last name. He's actually Mr. Paul, if that makes sense to you. Uh, so, and you're going to meet another Mr. Paul in this story, aren't you? Sergius Paulus. Paulus was a fairly common last name. But anyway, so we know Paul, don't we? Uh, he was the original persecutor of the church, and then he was fabulously and miraculously converted in Acts chapter 9. That's a wonderful story. In between those two giants, who are both now stationed in Antioch, we have another, uh, several other very interesting characters uh, the first one that's mentioned there between those two is Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, many scholars believe that's the, the Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene uh, indicates it's from North Africa. Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Jesus. Luke records that story in Luke twenty-two thirty-six. Can you imagine? 
Can you imagine showing up for church on Sunday and you're like, yeah, I wonder who's giving the sermon this morning. Oh, look, it's Simon of Cyrene. The, the, the man who was shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek with Jesus under the burden of the cross. Can you imagine that? He became a very important witness in the first generation. And in fact, even his sons uh, became notable spokespersons for the gospel. So when Mark tells the story of Simon of Cyrene in his gospel, he mentions his sons by name. And scholars say, obviously, they were active in the church. Otherwise, why would you mention someone's sons who came along later? It says, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. And then Rufus is mentioned uh, in connection with the Apostle Paul in Rome at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, along with Rufus's mother, whom we presume to be Simon's wife. So the whole family appears to have played a pivotal role in the first generation of the church. Now, as for Lucius of Cyrene, we don't actually know much about him. Some speculate that maybe he was the brother of Simon of Cyrene. We can't say for sure. Menaean, who is mentioned next, is described by Luke as a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. The Greek word used there that's translated in some Bibles as lifelong friend. You might have something different in your translation. It's a word that actually means uh, foster brother or half brother. So we're not sure exactly what the relationship was, but it was a close relationship. Menan was a cultural and political insider. He was lifelong friends with the man who beheaded John the Baptist and who conspired with Pilate to have Jesus killed. And so, like Simon of Cyrene, he was an important witness. Can you, that's a pretty stacked lineup. Can you imagine, you know, you're walking to church with your family, and you're like, gee, I wonder who's going to preach the sermon today. Will it be the Apostle Paul, the, the first persecutor of the church, who has like the most amazing conversion story ever? Will it be him? Will it be Barnabas, son of encouragement? You know you're going to get a good message when the preacher's nickname is son of encouragement, right? Not like, you know, stick in the eye Steve, right? You know, or... <laughs> Punch in the gut, Gus, right? Son of encouragement brings a good word, I would imagine. Or, or then you think, wow, man, if it's not one of those two, I mean, maybe it'll be Simon of, Simon of Cyrene, like, who stood shoulder, who breathed the breath of Jesus under the cross. Or maybe it'll be the guy who was, who was with Herod when he interviewed Jesus before sending him back to Pilate, who, who was probably sitting right next to Herod when the dancing girl asked for the head of John the Baptist. Brother's got some stories to tell. It's a stacked lineup. This was a strong church. This was a healthy church. This was a church that was ready to overflow. And by and large, I think that's the way it is supposed to go. Now, obviously, we're unlikely to ever have the kind of leadership depth that is depicted here, but the principle, I think, is pretty straightforward. Health is to be pursued, not as an end on its own, but for the sake of the mission. The goal isn't to have the healthiest, deepest, strongest church ever in the history of the universe. The goal is to achieve a sufficient level of strength that would allow you to sacrifice significant resources for the sake of the mission, which is exactly what we're attempting to do here. This, this is why we have absolutely no plans to build a 1,000-seat auditorium here on the site. Now, I will tell you this, a church of that size comes with certain efficiencies. There are economies of scale associated with larger church. That's why larger churches exist. I will tell you this, with a donor base of 1,000 people and with a volunteer base of 1,000 people, there are things you can do, right? 
there's, there's a level of experience there. I will tell you this, the coffee at a church of a thousand is better than the ch- coffee here, right? Not that there's anything wrong with our coffee. I'm just saying, you could have that coffee that they get with the cats on that. Yeah, don't even go there. But apparently it's like a thousand bucks a bag. You can have incredible coffee in a church of a thousand people. You can have programs galore. You can have a massive staff, but that's not the point, is it? The point isn't to offer the best experience possible to your people. The point is to be healthy enough to overflow, healthy enough to send well-trained, godly, spirit-filled members and leaders out so that the mission can can continue to grow. And by God's grace, that's what we've always tried to do here. We self-identify, and and I realize that this morning we're kind of doing two things simultaneously. We're preaching on a text, but we're also kind of recasting the vision. Over 30% of our congregation right now has been here for less than five years, meaning that we kind of think of them as COVID folks. They either came just before COVID, so we didn't really get to know you as well as we would like, or they came during COVID, which means actually for the first two years, they were basically online, or they came after COVID because they started connecting with us online during COVID. It's a very unique stage in the life of our church, so we kind of always have to be recasting the vision. But one of the things that we've self-identified as a church probably going back to 2010, is we want to be an overflow church. I mean, we want to be healthy here, but not just so that we can have a great experience here. We want to be healthy here so that we can be constantly positioned to participate in the Great Commission. And so back in 2011, we had a meeting. It was called Listening, Visioning, and Discerning, where we got a bunch of people together and we just asked questions. And, and the meeting was inspired by the fact that we were starting to push up against all the growth barriers this is uh, before we purchased those two buildings at the front of our parking lot, uh, one of which is still there and is now the leadership center, the other, which we tore down and uh, increased the parking lot. But at, back in 2011, the issue was we were running up against all three growth barriers, CM space, parking space, and uh, sanctuary space. And so we're like, what are we going to do? And of course, we talked about like what would it look like to just blow this place up, make it a church that could facilitate a congregation of you know, 800 in a single service. What, what would that look like? And you start costing that out and your eyes go really wide and Brenda gets angry at us and <laughs> I'm just teasing. But everybody who, you know, counts the numbers, they, they're good at math and they see that. And we just prayed and we're like, hey, if that's what the Lord wants us to do, we would do that, wouldn't we? we but we didn't feel that was what the Lord wanted us to do. And, and a strong sense, a really strong sense emerged out of that meeting that actually what the Lord wanted us to do is, is send a group of people from here and start another work in the city. That actually it would be, be better for folks and it would be better for the city. Instead of just having one big church up on the hill, if, if, if we helped to see a whole bunch of churches planted. And so out of that came the decision to send 75 of our, of our best folks, of our, folks who were really well trained. And we kind of, we didn't tell anybody, like, you got to go, you got to go. We kind of waited to see who would come forward, and it was incredible. Some of, I'll be honest, my eyes started going wide when, when we started seeing some of the people who were coming forward, because they were all really key volunteers, and it was a test of faith for me, where I'm like, I don't want you to go. I, I didn't say that, I don't think, uh, but it, we sent 75 of our best people, and those 75 people very quickly became 150 people, and now, RCC's bumping up against 200 pretty much every Sunday. It, 
It's amazing. And that's the miracle of Overflow Church. What you give away actually grows faster out there than it ever could do in here. And that's the magic, right? And that, that's exactly what we're trying to do again in cold water. That's what it means to be an overflow church. We want to get healthy. We want to train people. We, we want to see people grow. Not just and, and not primarily to maximize our experience in here, but rather so as to position ourselves to be useful out there. So that's the pattern we're seeing in the story. We have a healthy church giving away health for the sake of the mission. Second thing we see in the story is that this entire endeavor was initiated by the Holy Spirit in a time of worship. Where's Pastor Rob? I don't know why I always struggle to find you. You're always sitting right there. Uh, I really appreciated what you said there in the, in the, I think it was in the opening video, but why we sing. Because I think some people don't understand why we sing. They think, you know, it's enough that I'm here. I serve and I listen to the sermon, right? I'm an S squared Christian. I'm a sermon and serve guy. Um, and, and, but the worship piece doesn't make sense to us sometimes. But it is interesting, you know, I, one Sunday I'd love to do a, a sermon, not from any one particular text, but let's just kind of flip it all over the Bible to talk about music and singing. Because I think some of us think it's emotionally manipulative, and it can be, can't it? I mean, have you ever, I, I remember going to a youth group, I won't say at what church, but I, went, I used to go to a youth group at this other church, just largely because I was in young adults and they had lots of single Christian girls there, but that's not the point of the illustration. Um, but it was a different church, it was from a different background from us. And one of the things I noticed is, like, they, they sing the chorus of the song like 48 times. And, uh, and after a while, like, you feel like you're just kind of like in a, in a, and you're like, something weird is happening here. I'll never do that again, Rob, I promise. <laughs> so I get, I get that there's a manipulative version of that for sure. And yet, you know, flipping through your Bible, it is interesting to notice how frequently a connection is made between intense, intense, intensified spiritual connection and music. Do you remember even one of the prophets said one time, they asked him to prophesy and he said, bring me a musician. Almost as if to reach the level of communion he wanted to have with God, there needed to be some music going. You're like, what? Just interesting, right? There's a connection there. We're human beings. And I think most of us come into church a little crusty. Is that okay to say? We live in a world that crustifies us. That's the word. But it does, it does take, a, some, it takes some music sometimes to soften our hearts and to position us to connect with the Lord. And I think that's part of what we're supposed to see in this story. Look at verse two. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, of course, you know, our eyes immediately gravitate towards the sensational part of that. We want to know, well, how did the Holy Spirit communicate that? You know, the commentators will usually list the options. You know, they just said there were many prophets there, so maybe the Lord spoke directly through one of the prophets. That's possible. Maybe the Lord gave a sense of consensus to the elders. Maybe. Maybe there was an audible voice. I don't, I don't know. The, the text doesn't say. We just know that this impression, this priority, did not emerge organically from the congregation. And why would it, Right? They were living the Vita Loca. They had five fantastic 
preachers and pastors at that church. They were resource rich. They were really real well fed. You know, you hear people will say sometimes, well, we, we go to that church because we want to be well fed. This is the church we'd all be going to, right? Imagine how well, well fed you'd be there. And so we're not surprised that it never actually occurred to them to send two of their very best preachers away to plan a new church. This idea had to be put in them, implanted into this congregation by the Holy Spirit of God. And it came while they were worshiping and fasting. Now, fasting is an interesting word. There's no specific command to fast in the New Testament. And yet the word fasting appears several times. It appears three times in the book of Acts. And in the New Testament, fasting is usually treated as an intensifier. As I mentioned, the word's used three times in Acts. We see it right here in verse 2. Always paired with something else. Worshiping and fasting here in verse 2. In verse 3, fasting and praying. And then in chapter 14, verse 23, prayer and fasting. So fasting is a thing you do to enter more deeply into something else. So it was during a time of intense worship that the Holy Spirit led this church to make this sacrifice, to break up the dream team and send out Barnabas and Saul. There is so much that we could say about that. Sometimes in churches, mission and worship are pitted against each other. And usually if you're on team mission, you're occupying the moral high ground, right? Uh, Folks on team mission sometimes look down on folks on team worship because team worship can be seen as selfish, right? Like this is, you know, worship's all about us. It's all about making us feel good as if that is, you know, it's selfish to want to be connected to the Lord. But that's a false relationship. That's a false contrast. Because as we're seeing in this story, worship led to mission. The, the two are connected. And that makes sense because if you are not fired up about God, if you are not seeing God and savoring God and loving God, then you're never going to make the sacrifices. You're never going to starve yourself for the cause of mission. The one thing leads to the other. John Piper said famously, mission exists because worship doesn't. You understand that connection, right? When it runs that way. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Which means that we do mission to extend worship. We want other people to come into this same relationship that we have. We want everyone to see in God what we see. So mission exists because worship doesn't. But here in this story, we see that mission exists because worship did. This mission was fueled out of, was birthed by the Holy Spirit in a time of intense corporate worship. And let me just say this, as a church about to experience the pain and cost of mission again, we will need to remember that. Third thing I want you to see here in this particular passage, uh, or in, in this particular story, I should, see, should say, is that mission began in the territory of a near neighbor. The island of Cyprus uh, was immediately adjacent to where this story happens. It was about 100 kilometers off the coast of Syria. Apparently, you could see Cyprus from the shore, from the port city of Seleucia, on a clear day. So they were not trying to take the gospel to the other side of the world, where they probably wouldn't speak the language, where they wouldn't be familiar with the local customs. They were taking the gospel literally next door. 
It was a place they knew. It was a place where they had connections. Of course, we already found out in, earlier in, the, in Acts, in Acts 4, 36, that Barnabas was actually a native of Cyprus. That's where he was from. So he would have known all the, all, all the local customs. He would have been very well connected. It was also a place that had a little bit of gospel background. There's some gospel preaching. We're told that in Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this was not completely foreign territory. It was basically one barrier over. And there's wisdom in taking that approach. Cultural barriers are hard to cross. And the more of them there are, the more your access and effectiveness is delayed. So that's why, for example, we take the approach that we were taking in South Africa. You've heard Dr. Craig say many times, you know, he does, his goal is not for us to send over the great white hope. That's, those are his words, right? He says that's, that's not how missions should be done in, in Africa. Instead, he, he said, listen, we got a guy there, Pastor Shadrach, who's willing to move right into the rural areas where we have all these tiny little churches and all these pastors that haven't had access to formal education. Pastor Shadrach is willing to move. And that's one barrier for him, one cultural barrier. He's moving from a town into a rural area. area. But he speaks the language. He's Zulu, right? So it makes sense to invest in him and for him to make that transition. Same philosophy. Uh, I think it was Scott uh, in his prayer mentioned Paul Massey. That's our entire approach with Paul Massey. Paul Massey is training up gospel workers in India who are near neighbors to people in the most unreached nations on planet earth. And so they're learning the gospel. They're being trained up in gospel work and being sent out to their near neighbors, which is exactly what we're trying to do in Coldwater. Now, are there exceptions to this general rule? Yeah, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You got to send people places. They got to learn new languages, new, of course, I understand that. But there is wisdom in recognizing and affirming this as a general rule. First thing, or the fourth thing I want you to see here is that this missionary endeavor initially targeted people associated with the Jewish synagogue. Look at verse five there. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. We're gonna see that pattern repeated again and again and again over these, these journeys. When Paul arrived in a city, uh, his first step was always to go and find a synagogue. And he would go and he'd preach in the synagogue, and he would preach, we're told again and again, to two types of people. To Jews, obviously, and then to a group called God-fearers, or in Greek, phobumenoi. And then usually after a while, Paul would get kicked out of the synagogue, and he'd take all his converts with him, and he'd start something right next door. Sometimes literally right next door, as in the case in Corinth. Now, there are all kinds of reasons why Paul took that approach. Some of them are theological and don't apply directly to what we're trying to do today. But interestingly, Luke mentions none of those, which intentionally or not serves to put the focus on the pragmatic benefits of this approach. And there were pragmatic benefits. These people were people who had grown up in the Jewish synagogue. So they, they knew the Old Testament stories. They knew the Old Testament promises. They were familiar. They had some background. And therefore, when they were converted, they could immediately be recruited as co-laborers. And so whatever else is going on here, I think it is fair to say that there is faith and efficiency in sowing our seed where some kind of gospel foundation has already been laid. 
We don't always have to start from scratch. In fact, the course of wisdom is often in building on whatever foundation is there, however imperfect it may be. And we can still do that in Canada. I think we have a a whole generation left where that is still possible to do. There are hundreds and thousands of people in Canada, like me, who went to Beavers and Boy Scouts in the local United Church. I went to I participated in that program at uh, York Pines United Church in Kettleby, Ontario, when I was a little boy. Now, was that a perfect program? Not at all. Did they teach the whole gospel there? No, they did not. But some seeds were sown. I don't know anybody my age uh, in, in the room still has the old beaver pledge memorized. I had about half of it. As I looked it up, I realized I'd combined two of them together in my mind. But beavers in Canada in my day were taught to say, I promise to love God and to help take care of the world. That's not bad. And then wolf cubs, this is the, I meshed it with this one. This is the one that's stuck in my brain. Wolf cubs, which was the next age up, were taught to say, I promise to do my best to do my duty to God and the queen, to keep the law of the wolf cub pack, and to do a good turn to someone every day. Anybody else memorize that as a kid? Yeah, there's more than a handful of us in here, right? Now, is that perfect gospel? No, it's not, but it's not nothing. There's a seed of something there. And sometimes with a little sunshine, a little water, and a little love, Those kinds of seeds can grow into something real. And we would be foolish not to take advantage of that. I think we make a mistake in this country sometimes in targeting the least religious people in this culture first. They did it exactly the opposite way in the New Testament. The fifth thing I want you to see here is that this missionary initiative provided an important context for leadership development. We'll be brief here, but I think this is a detail worth noticing. Look at the second half of verse 5. Luke says somewhat offhandedly, And they had John to assist him. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago that while Paul and Barnabas were in Jerusalem for all the events that are narrated in Acts 12, one of the things they appear to have been doing is recruiting John Mark for their first missionary journey. So Acts 12, 25 says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. John Mark's an interesting character. We know that his mother was very wealthy, Uh, It was in her house where the church was having their meetings in Jerusalem. We know that he was very well educated. He became the official scribe later in in his life and ministry. He became the official scribe for the Apostle Peter. So the church father, Papias, actually says that uh, John Mark took all the gospel sermons and recollections and memories of the Apostle Peter and turned them into what we call the Gospel of Mark. That's why it's called the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is really the Gospel of Peter, but it was dictated to, written, and arranged by this Mark. Pretty significant character. He was an enormous figure in the second generation of the church. But as you probably know, as a Bible reader, he did not exactly cover himself in glory on this first missionary journey. In Acts 13, 13, it says, Now Paul and his companions set set sail from Paphos, came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We'll hear more about that. Apparently, it became a source of conflict between 
Paul and Barnabas when it came time to planning the second missionary journey. Barnabas wanted to give John Mark another chance. He saw a lot of potential in this sharp young man. But the Apostle Paul didn't think it was wise to take somebody who had already proven they didn't have a lot of resilience with them on such an important trip. So they decided to agree to disagree, and they instead planned two trips instead of one. Barnabas took John Mark with him and went one way. Paul took Silas with him and went another way. And I think I mentioned to you in church history, the reason you never hear about Barnabas anymore is because apparently Barnabas was dragged out of the synagogue and stoned to death in Salamis, one of the names that we just read. But it was a source of contention, as I mentioned. For now, all I want you to see, we'll talk more about that in, in subsequent weeks, but this week all I want you to see is that in a church on the move, there are opportunities for younger leaders to find their legs. At rest, a church tends to platform A-list leaders, right? And that's exactly what was happening in this story. John Mark was nobody's favorite preacher at Antioch, amen? Right? I mean, you, you, wanted, to hear, you wanted to hear Paul, or you wanted to hear uh, Barnabas, or you wanted to hear Simon, or you want, like, there were a whole bunch of people ahead of John Mark. But once we go out onto mission, all of a sudden, young leaders are being given opportunities, And we've experienced the same thing here in our own expansion efforts. Those of you who've been here for a while will remember that Pastor Levi, who's now the lead pastor down at RCC, actually began here as a worship intern. Uh, He was a young guy strumming the guitar. When we began to plan this um, church plant down in the South Ward, we realized we're going to be short worship leaders, because that's one of the hardest things to find, is somebody who's, who's willing to do that and able to do that. And so Pastor Jody sort of wanted to load up so that we could do that, so we brought on a worship intern, Levi. And the thought was that he'd kind of study under Jody, and then, and then um, we'd, we'd have him lead the worship team down there at RCC, and that's what we did for the first couple of years. He was Pastor Jody's understudy. And then, as you remember, we gave him an opportunity to preach one Sunday, and the rest, as they say, is history. But literally, it was the necessity associated with expansion that provided opportunities for Pastor Levi to discover and develop his gifts. And that's how it goes. And, and we'll need to remember that because when you start something like this, when you in, in initially launch out, you are most aware of the cost. You might be aware of the cost this morning. You may have been asked to serve downstairs in the nursery because somebody who was supposed to be there is over in Colbar. Maybe the person who sits in the row behind you isn't here this week because they're with the launch committee down in Coldwater. I look back at our, the row behind us and it seems like a bunch of folks were missing. It. And then I realize, I, I think I know where they are, right? When you start a work like this, you are most immediately aware of the cost. We, it, this, this will cost us key worship volunteers. I think we've got a team of five or six uh, folks leading worship down there in the Sunday. Pastor Rob Shagan said it's more than five or six. It's, it's, a, it's a full-size team. This will cost us children's ministry leaders. This will cost us significant chunks of Pastor Matt's time as an associate pastor here. All that is true. We're very, very aware of that today. But that's not the whole story, is it? Because no doubt, once again, as we step out in faith, the Lord and his providence will respond. And he will backfill leaders here. People you never noticed or imagined before will step up and will emerge as leaders you can't believe you ever lived without. 
He's done it before. He'll do it again. The sixth thing we ought to notice here is that this first missionary venture had to pass through significant spiritual opposition. Not everyone celebrated the arrival of this team on the island of Cyprus. There was a Jewish false prophet there named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus sounds more sinister than it is. Jesus was a very popular name among Jewish people in the first century. Once the Christian movement took off, obviously mamas stopped naming their kids Jesus. Um, but uh, in, the, in that century, it's a very common name. And Bar is just an Aramaic way of saying son. So this, this person's name was Elymas, son of Jesus, which is ironic, but not necessarily spectacular. Uh, but he was a Jewish magician. Now, those words don't often go together. Uh, there are lots of uh, commandments in the Bible in the Old Testament forbidding the practice of magic and sorcery. So New Testament scholar David G. Peterson says here, this man was an apostate Jew who had succumbed to the attractions of heathenism, using his power and influence as an attendant of the proconsul. So Elymas had put himself forward as an expert on all matters of religion, and he had managed to worm his way into the inner council of this Roman official. So if you're a Tolkien fan, then Elymas is like Grima Wormtongue. Do you remember him? In the court of King Theoden of Rohan. And the Apostle Paul then is like Gandalf who breaks the spell of the wicked conjurer so that the king or the proconsul in this situation can recover his wits and breathe again the free air of men. That's the idea here. And the point is that the gospel will always be opposed by whisperers and so-called experts. Our culture right now is awash with Christian apostates who have made money and have formed businesses and enterprises attacking the Christian faith. Men like Bart Ehrman, Barnabas, or sorry, Abraham Piper, uh, men who grew up in the inner circle of evangelicalism, but who have now taken to the internet and TikTok to provide videos explaining to young people why they should leave the Christian faith. In every time and in every culture, those who would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ have had to press through that kind of opposition. But it can be done, as it is done here in this story. Elymas is unmasked, and the proconsul Sergius Paulus is enabled to believe, which leads to our final observation this morning. We see this first missionary venture relying upon the essential attractiveness of the Christian gospel. You've got to piece two verses together to see this, but it's worth the effort. Look first at verse 7. Talks about the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Says, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So, according to Luke, Sergius Paulus sought to hear the word of God. He had heard about this Christian message. Now he wanted to hear it for himself. Now, look at verse 12. Once Elymas was out of the way, it says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Once again, our eyes as readers tend to be drawn to the spicy bits. We're very interested in how exactly Paul got Elymas out of the way. But that's not the focus that Luke wants us to have. He wants us to see that once we get Elymas out of the way, Sergius Paulus is attracted to. He is astonished by the word of the Lord. How easy it is to forget that. 
we so often, when we, when we branch out, even when we're trying to attract folks here, we so often put, our front, put the wrong foot forward. We foreground other things. We foreground the music or the kids' ministry or the fellowship, all of which are great things, but none of which made much of an impression on Sergius Paulus. He came for the teaching. He came for the word of God. Listen, can I tell you something? This strategy will never not work. And in fact, I suspect it will work a great deal better even than it ever has in the years and decades ahead in this culture. The more this culture craters, the more our chickens come home to roost, the more attractive and astonishing the word of God will be to people in our neighborhoods. As everything around us crumbles, this word of God will remain fixed and solid. As everything around us goes crazy, this word of God will sound increasingly wise. As everything around us turns to ash, this word of God will taste marvelously and gloriously good. So preach it. Let it out. Let it rip. Let it roar. Press through the noise and opposition and preach it. Preach it here. Preach it there. Preach it everywhere. Because the grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for what we've had the opportunity to read today. Lord, we're thankful for these foundational stories. We're thankful for this reminder. And Lord, as we branch out, as we hopefully in some faithful way try to imitate this pattern in our own day, as we reach out, Lord, I pray that we would lead with the word of God that we would trust that the word of God is going to do the work of God. Lord, that it isn't going to be flash, it isn't going to be sizzle, it isn't going to be our awesome sound system, it isn't going to be our fantastic coffee. Lord, it's going to be the word of God. It's going to be the message. And so, Lord, I pray that even as the word now begins to go out a little further and in some different places than it has in weeks past, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be doing what only you can do that you'd be working in hearts right now, that you'd be inside reaching up. Lord, who knows whether some of these seeds that were planted years and decades ago would maybe have come to life this morning under the sound of the word of God preached. That is something only you can do. But Lord, we delight in being used in that process. So use us, use us in every situation to speak the word of God and to trust in the Holy Spirit of God for results. And Lord, bless Bless this initiative. Lord, as always, we would say, you're the Lord of this church. You're the head of this church. If we are barking up the wrong tree, if we're reaching out in places we shouldn't be, just slap our hands, Lord, redirect us. We just want to be useful. We're not in this for kingdom cornerstone. We're in this for King Jesus. So Lord, equip us, inspire us, fill us, edify us, and send us wherever you would desire us to be for the honor of Jesus and for the good of of your people. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.